We turn once more to the book of Esther, coming now to chapter 4. Scripture reading will be Esther chapter 4, and the entire chapter will also be the text. Let us hear the word of the Lord. When Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry and came even before the king's gate, for none might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews, and fasting, and weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Esther's maids and her chamberlains came and told it her. Then was the queen exceedingly grieved, and she sent raiment to clothe Mordecai and to take away his sackcloth from him, but he received it not. Then called Esther for Hatak, one of the king's chamberlains, whom he had appointed to attend upon her, and gave him a commandment to Mordecai to know what it was and why it was. So Hatak went forth to Mordecai unto the street of the city, which was before the king's gate. And Mordecai told him of all that had happened unto him, and of the sum of the money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the Jews to destroy them. Also he gave him the copy of the writing of the decree that was given at Shushan to destroy them, to show it unto Esther and to declare it unto her and to charge her that she should go in unto the king to make supplication unto him and to make request before him for her people. And Hatak came and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Again, Esther spake unto Hatak and gave him commandment unto Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come unto the king into the inner court who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter that he may live. But I have not been called to come in unto the king these thirty days. And they told to Mordecai Esther's words. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Then Esther bade them return to Mordecai this answer. Go, gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan, and fast ye for me, and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise. And so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. 
So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. Thus far we read the Holy Scriptures. Beautiful royal city of Shushan, which had been the scene of such merriment the past few years, such excitement, is now a place of bewilderment. That's where the history ended last time, at the close of chapter 3. The whole city of Shushan was perplexed, even as the king, Ahasuerus, and his newly elevated prime minister sit down with callous indifference and cold-hearted wickedness to eat and to drink. And Shushan was perplexed because of the newly published edict of King Ahasuerus, an edict written by Haman but sealed with the king's own seal, an edict unlike any of the other empire-wide edicts that the people of Persia had become accustomed to, an edict singling out one particular people in the empire for complete extermination. An edict ordering the destruction of the Jews in just under a year's time. And the city was in turmoil. Perplexed and frightened by such a decree as this. And most of all, the Jews were perplexed and put into a state of mourning. We observe that behind this wrathful decree of Haman the Agagite stands the serpent himself, Satan, who is mustering to him the full power of the world at that time in another attempt to crush the seed of the woman and to put an end to the line of Christ. Though Satan undoubtedly hated whatever faithful Jews could be found in Shushan or anywhere else in the world, his eyes were fixed upon the exiles who had returned and who had rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. The exiles, Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the others, where the line of Christ was to be found. But now from the darkness, in chapter 4, we see the hand of the unseen king at work, bringing forth a glimmer of hope out of what seems to be an inescapable doom for God's people. And that hope centers around the person that God himself has put in a position to prevent the carrying out of this edict of extermination. Esther, the queen, for such a time as this. Not because of who she was, not because of any qualities in her, but because God himself, for his purposes, had raised her up for such a time as this. And that is the wonder that begins to unfold now as we come to Esther chapter 4. We will see God now directly working through the means of Esther to bring deliverance to his people. We will see the hand of the unseen king at work. The Lord's doing, which is marvelous in our eyes. So let's take up Esther chapter 4. 
And let's consider this chapter under the theme, Esther, the queen for such a time as this. We're going to go through the history of this chapter, beginning with the first part and looking at it under the first point, informed of impending peril. Esther is informed of impending peril. Secondly, she is urged to plead for her people and finally determined to go unbidden. And we will see that the hand moving all of this history is no human hand. The hand of the unseen king, Jehovah. Esther 4 now resumes the history in the immediate aftermath of Haman's decree. The decree has now been published throughout Shushan, and the royal messengers are heading out with all speed to the four corners of the Persian Empire to deliver the edict of death. And now the history zooms in on Mordecai, who represents the Jews in Shushan. And we find Mordecai and the Jews entering into a state of great mourning and a public display of grief. That's Esther 4 verses 1 and 2. When Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes and went into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry and came even before the king's gate, for none might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. You can picture Mordecai as he had learned of this edict. He holds in his hand a copy of it. It seems as though the royal scribes had produced many copies which had been distributed and posted around the city of Shushan. He holds it in his hand. His eyes read over the elegant script of a royal scribe. And the words so elegantly written spell death. And he feels on that page the very heat of Haman's hatred. And he begins to put things together as he reads the words, destroy, kill, and cause to perish all Jews on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. And he knew, the text says, he perceived all that had happened. He makes connections. His refusal to bow down before Haman. His snubbing of Haman's pride. And Haman then going to the king. And what Haman had accomplished in persuading the king to publish an edict such as this. And apparently Mordecai had his sources in the palace. As verse 7 tells us, he even knows of the bribe that Haman had offered to pay Ahasuerus in order to secure permission to carry out his wicked scheme. Mordecai perceives what has been done, and his heart melts within him. And there's nothing he can do. And so he tears his clothes. He puts on sackcloth, that is, the rough goat hair clothing that a mourner would wear. He sprinkles ashes upon his head, all of these things, visible and outward expressions of anguish and grief, as well as humiliation. And he goes now out into the city streets, as verse 1 says, into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry. He went into downtown Shushan to be heard by all, crying and lamenting. And verse 2 says, even before the king's gate, all the way to that great structure that was the center of the palace administration where he formerly worked. He can't get in. 
can't pass through the king's gate because of yet another Persian law. As the text makes clear, no sackcloth clad person was allowed through the king's gate. And we can understand the reasons why. King Ahasuerus, who was living in his artificial world of pleasure, did not want anything that would offend the eyes or the ears to enter into his sanctuary. And so no one, no beggars, no mourners may pass this point. Mordecai mourns, and verse 3 indicates that as far as this edict spread, mourning also spread. As the message went out throughout the provinces, Jews everywhere resorted to fasting, to weeping, to wailing, to donning sackcloth. Now, a question that presents itself is, why is Mordecai making such a public display of his grief and dismay? He goes out of his way to be seen and to be heard. There are a few parts to the answer. Part of it is that he is simply expressing the intensity of his sorrow and the helplessness that he and the Jews felt before this decree. A loud and bitter cry of lamentation over the imminent destruction of the Jewish people. And what else could they do? An unalterable law of the Medes and Persians had gone forth and soon the machinery of the most powerful empire in the world would be moving forward with one deadly purpose. Finding and killing Every single Jew. Who could stand before the unconquerable might of Persia? Where could they go? The Persian Empire over which Ahasuerus ruled spanned all the way to Ethiopia in the west and India in the east. That was the known world to these people. There was nowhere to go. What about humiliation and repentance? There's an interesting question here. Fasting, weeping, wailing, sackcloth was a way of humbly showing repentance in the Old Testament. Perhaps you think of the Ninevites in Jonah 3 verses 6 through 8 who proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth. Or think of God's command to the people of Israel in Joel 2 verse 12. Turn ye even to me with all your heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. Here we run run into that question that we keep running up against in the book of Esther. Because we don't know the spiritual condition of Mordecai and Esther. We can only make educated guesses. The Bible doesn't tell us whether they are elect or reprobate. Judging from appearances, Mordecai's weeping and mourning doesn't seem to be the humiliation of genuine repentance. As we'll see in a moment, His display of grief is more man-word than God-word. It's more to evoke a general sympathy among the citizens of Shushan who are already perplexed by this edict. But it was especially designed to catch the attention of Queen Esther. But where God's people were found, and where true faith was found, we can be sure that among the weeping And the putting on of sackcloth and ashes. There was found true humiliation and repentance before God. Though the outward expression of grief was the same throughout the Jewish world. There were many who expressed sincerely their humiliation and repentance toward God. You think of the Jews back in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel and the others. When they came to hear of this decree. How they must have cast themselves upon their faces before God 
imploring his mercy. This now, we have been delivered from the land of our captivity and now this edict is published, ordering something worse than captivity, the complete extermination of our race. The whole Jewish world fasted and wept and put on sackcloth. But there were some who rent their hearts, not just their garments. We see God's sovereign hand in this too. Maybe we don't think about it because the history of Esther focuses our attention on what's going on in Shushan. But this edict had an effect on Jews everywhere. And God used this edict even perhaps to turn some to himself in true repentance. But now back to Mordecai. As mentioned earlier, it appears that Mordecai's main aim in his public display of grief, besides evoking general sympathy, was to draw the attention of Esther. And we can gather that from the fact that he goes to the king's gate. Why does he go to the king's gate? Perhaps he didn't know the law that he would be barred entry. But the fact that he was a civil servant at the king's gate means he likely knew the laws of the king's gate. He gets as close to Esther as he can because he knows that word will reach Esther. As he cries bitterly outside the king's gate. And that's what happens, isn't it? As we go on in the history, word of Mordecai's distress does reach Esther. Esther, who has now for five years been a queen of Persia. Who has been living hidden away in the house of the women. Insulated from the rest of the world. But she comes to find out because her maidservants and her chamberlains inform her of Mordecai. Evidently, these servants knew something of Esther's care for Mordecai, though they didn't know precisely her relationship to him. And so verse 4 tells us that they told it her. And it there refers to the fact that Mordecai was out by the gate mourning and weeping. Esther we discern from the opening verses, did not yet know about Haman's decree. And that's striking. This shows how insulated she was. The whole empire is becoming unsettled by Haman's edict. Yet Esther, who is at its very center, is yet unaware. In the royal palace, she was on an island. Cut off from the rest of the world. Rarely did she leave. Rarely was she allowed to leave. And no one was allowed in. And that comes out in this passage. Mordecai and Esther are now living in completely different worlds. And we will see that. How even in their communication. It must be mediated by this servant, Hatak. And so, verse 4 tells us. When she hears about Mordecai's weeping. She is exceedingly grieved. And the literal rendering of the Hebrew is, she writhed in anguish. What the text is describing is that deep sense of foreboding, that piercing feeling that you get when you realize something terrible has happened, but you don't yet know what it is. You feel that pierce of fear and anguish, and then follows the inner turmoil of questions. And so... Esther sent raiment immediately to Mordecai to take away his sackcloth from him. And it appears her motive there was to allow him to get in and come to the court of the house of the women as he had done before. But Mordecai refuses it. And that signals to Esther that something serious has indeed happened. And so Esther calls her chamberlain Hatak. Hatak was a court eunuch. 
uh, servant that Ahasuerus had appointed to attend upon Esther's every need. And Esther dispatches Hatak to Mordecai to find out what is going on. Text says, to know what it was and why it was. She wanted to know the pertinent facts. What is going on, Mordecai, that is causing you to be so distressed? And why, why? What is the reason for your grief? Here again, let's note that separation. As this communication begins between Mordecai at the king's gate and, and Esther hidden away in the palace. How separated they are. All communication goes through this servant. And it stresses a couple things. In the first place, it stresses the helplessness of the Jews' situation. Mordecai is shut out of the king's palace. And that's expressive of the attitude of Ahasuerus to the wailing of so many of his citizens. He doesn't care. One bit. He sat down with Haman and ate and drank while his city was perplexed. Everything appears hopeless. But now, there's an application here as we look at Esther's isolation. She's cut off from Mordecai, only able to talk to him through this eunuch. She's cut off from the Jewish people. So cut off from them that she, of all people, didn't even know about Haman's edict. One of the main applications we've been tracing so far in the book of Esther is the peril of compromise with the world. And we saw how that compromise with the world on the part of Esther and Mordecai brought them into this situation. And here we see again the peril of compromise with the world. We heard about that this morning as a temptation that the devil often puts before us to sacrifice spiritual things for earthly advancement. Here we see one of the terrible consequences of persistent compromise with the world. It isolates us from our true community, God's people. When we try hard To blend in with the world, eventually we become indistinguishable from the world and we're more with the world than we are with God's people and we become cut off. And this application can be made specific. In our dating and marriages, this is why it's so important that we marry in the Lord and that we date in the Lord Esther was brought into a mixed marriage. And look at what it did to her. It isolated her in Ahasuerus' house and cut her off from Mordecai and the Jewish people of Shushan. And she, she helped out that isolation by listening to Mordecai and keeping her Jewish identity hidden for five years. Yes, she had the luxury of a palace life. But in reality, she was a prisoner behind golden bars. Now we might say Esther was forced. And there's an element of truth to that. We saw that when Ahasuerus cast the empire-wide net to gather the daughters of Persia to him so he could pick his favorite. There wasn't any choice. We made the application then. 
that though we understand Esther and what she did, because who are we to say we would have done differently, yet even under immense pressure, we must not compromise. But we are not forced the way Esther was. When it comes to our dating, when it comes to our marriage, when it comes to the choices we make, where to live, how to be employed, we are not forced by a tyrannical king. And that makes the application come to us with all the more force. Compromise not with the world. For compromise with the world leads to isolation from the community of faith. You see Esther in the palace. She's very lonely there. And so Haytack goes out. Haytack goes out into the street. Not the street really, but the large plaza that was before the king's gate where Mordecai had positioned himself. And now in verses 7 and 8, Mordecai tells Haytack everything that had happened to him. He tells Haytack of Haman's plot, the edict that meant death for his people. Even, even tells Haytack about the sum of money Haman had promised to King Ahasuerus to bribe him. And Mordecai handed to Hatak a copy of the edict and instructed him to return to Esther to show it to her and explain the situation. So verse 9, Hatak came and told Esther the words of Mordecai. And now the pieces fall into place in her mind. She understands what has transpired unbeknownst to her. As she reads the elegant script of her husband's scribes sentencing her people to death. Informed now of impending peril, Mordecai charges her to plead for her people. That's what we read in verse 9. And Hatak came and told Esther the words of Mordecai. And again, Esther spake unto Hatak and gave commandment, gave him commandment unto Mordecai. All the king's servants, I'm sorry, I'm reading in the wrong place. Mordecai urged her to go unto the king, to charge her that she should go in unto the king to make supplication unto him and to make request before him, for her people. That was Mordecai's charge. Relayed now to Esther through Hatak. And now, let's look at that charge that Mordecai gives. He urges her, and he urges her forcefully. The text says, charges her. Literally, commands. Commands. He commands her to go to the king. And this is, this is the way Mordecai has conducted himself towards Esther throughout the book so far. In Esther 2 verse 10, we read that Mordecai charged her not to reveal her Jewish identity. And in verse 20 of the same chapter, we're told that Esther did the commandment of Mordecai as when she was his daughter in his own house. She showed deference to Mordecai. And so here too, Mordecai, as he puts the things, the pieces together, and he sees the position that Esther is in, he sees a possibility for something to be done, and he charges her, Esther, go, go to the king and plead for your people. He gives a command, forgetting that she has left his house, and forgetting that now she is queen. And interestingly, as we go on in this chapter, we'll see those dynamics change a bit. 
up to this point in the book of Esther, Mordecai has been the authority figure commanding Esther, and Esther defers to him. But in the last verse of chapter 4, we find Esther, for the first time, taking real initiative and giving a command that Mordecai follows. But now let's notice that Mordecai's charge to Esther interestingly reverses his previous charge to her. Formerly, he had commanded her to hide her Jewish identity so that no one would know. And we speculated a little bit about the reasons for that. Esther had deferred to Mordecai's word and had kept this secret. And that's quite amazing that she was able to do that for five years now. But now it seems, in Mordecai's mind, that this impending peril upon his people is so pressing that it overrides whatever concerns there were to be had about revealing Esther's identity. And so he says, Esther, go to the king and plead for your people. And of course that means you're going to have to disclose your connection to the people sentenced to death. Well, now, when word comes back to Esther from Mordecai, Mordecai who has now charged her to go to the king, we see that Esther is hesitant to carry out Mordecai's charge. And that's now what we read in verse 11, where Esther gives two reasons why she is hesitant to go and plead for her people. Verse 11, all the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come unto the king into the inner court who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter that he may live. There's the first reason. Mordecai, going to the king could cost me my life. There's a law. And it's Ahasuerus' own law. A law specifically for his court. That nobody, no matter who you are, nobody may come to the king unannounced, uncalled for, uninvited. You may not just come to the king whenever you want to. And to deter such unwelcome intrusions upon his personal space and time, the king gave an extreme penalty, death, to any who would dare approach him unbidden. Esther chides Mordecai a little bit here. Everybody knows this. You know this, as well as I do. You're a civil servant at the king's gate. I must be called upon in the king's own timing. I can't just go to him. You see, it didn't matter that Esther was the queen. She was not exempt from this law. There were only certain privileged persons, such as Haman, his right-hand man, as we'll see later. But not even Esther the queen could approach Ahasuerus unbidden. But now... A second reason for hesitation, the last part of verse 11. Esther goes on to say, But I have not been called to come in unto the king these 30 days. You see there, Esther isn't just saying, I haven't been called and so I can't go. She's saying, I haven't been called for 30 days. A whole month. 
that raises questions about whether Esther has fallen out of favor with fickle King Ahasuerus. And that would not be out of character for this man. She's suggesting that going to the king to plead for her people right now, when she hasn't been called for 30 days, will likely not be successful. She wonders whether she's fallen out of favor with the king. Given her uncertain status, Ahasuerus is even less likely to receive her intrusion favorably, even less likely to hear her request, especially since the request is going to include, by the way, there's a secret I've hidden from you for five years. I'm a Jew. How would Ahasuerus react? Esther had reason to fear, reason to be hesitant. And that's why she pushes back a little bit against Mordecai's charge. The typical storybook presentation of the history of Esther can sometimes make it hard to understand why Esther would be afraid. The storybook presentation is this. Esther is happily married to the king whose heart she won. And though he's a rather superficial man, yet he's a doting husband who loves his queen. That's not the Ahasuerus we've gotten to know in Esther 1, 2, and 3, is it? We've seen that this is a fickle man, a tyrant. An abusive tyrant who controlled every aspect of his court and the life of his queen's He kept her because she pleased him. That's why he married her, for her looks. That's what Ahasuerus cared about and nothing more. Esther had good reason to wonder whether he would receive her if she came unannounced. Look what he did with Vashti when she refused to come at his command. It was reasonable for Esther to suspect that if she were to come unbidden, he'd get rid of her just as quickly. Esther knew her husband, fickle man that he was. Her fear for her life is not unreasonable. This shows us another consequence of that compromise with the world. Esther was not in a happy marriage here, not in a happy marriage at all. There was no companionship. Ahasuerus did not love Esther, with real, true love, he was a pleasure-seeking tyrant, and she was but an object to him who could just as well be traded for another. Important reminder to put the spiritual first in our relationships, in our marriages, in everything. The spiritual first. God first. His kingdom first. Well, now going on with the history, Esther, having expressed her hesitancy, communicates that to Hatak, their busy intermediary, and Hatak is sent back to tell Mordecai, and he relays to Mordecai Esther's words. And Mordecai replies, insistently urging Esther to go forward despite the personal danger and risk that she sees. And he tries to persuade her now with three arguments, beginning in verse 
13 and continuing through verse 14. Verses 13 and 14 are Mordecai's now reply in his final effort to persuade Esther. And so his first argument is found in verse 13. Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. Basically what Mordecai is saying here is silence isn't going to help anybody. You're in mortal danger whether you do something or whether you remain quiet. You are a Jew. And Haman's edict ordering the extermination of all Jews is an unalterable law of the Medes and the Persians making no exceptions. That edict is a danger to you. And just because you're in the king's house doesn't mean you're safe. Your predecessor Vashti was also in the king's house. And what happened to her? When she displeased the king. You're not safe. The law states every Jew must die. It makes no exceptions. Being in the king's house won't save you. We know how inflexible the laws of the Medes and Persians were. Think back to the history of Daniel. How Darius grieved over the fact that Daniel had to be executed. But he couldn't take back the law. And so Daniel was thrown into the den of lions. Even though Darius didn't want it to happen. But now, the second argument, the first part of verse 14. Mordecai presses the case. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place, but thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. There's some questions of interpretation here. This is a a verse that's not so easy. Some have read this as a veiled reference to God. As if Mordecai is saying, if you do nothing, help will arise from another place. That is, help will arise from God. Even if you do nothing, God will see to it that the Jews are delivered. But that interpretation is problematic for a couple of reasons. In the first place, Mordecai here is trying to persuade Esther to act. It would be very strange if Mordecai, in attempting to persuade her, says, Go, but if you don't, help will come from somewhere else. It's not a very persuasive argument. And it then doesn't make sense with the rest of the verse. If God would bring deliverance from another place, if that's what Mordecai is saying, why does he then go on to say that Esther and her father's house would still perish? And another reason why that interpretation is problematic is Mordecai here is drawing a contrast between Esther and deliverance that might come from somewhere else. It wouldn't make sense for him to say, either you act and deliver the people or God will. And so the best way to interpret the first part of verse 14 is to understand it as a question, as a rhetorical question, not as a veiled reference to God or help coming from somewhere else, but as a rhetorical question emphasizing precisely the point that in Mordecai's mind, help will not come from anywhere else. And the Hebrew grammar permits this. So reading it as a question, we would read the verse this way. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place? Question mark. A rhetorical question. The point being, 
No. Esther, if not you, then where? Nowhere. That's Mordecai's thinking. They're doomed. Unless Esther acts. You're the only one, Esther. Deliverance can come from nowhere else. And then he comes to the climax of the argument in the last part of verse 14. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Esther, think about it. You've been put into this position. You've been elevated to the position of queenship in the empire of Persia. You alone of all Jews are in a position to act. You have an in with the king. Perhaps this is the very reason that you were crowned queen for such a time as this. Let's pause a moment and reflect on Mordecai's words. These words come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Some of the most well-known words in the book of Esther. There's application to be made here. And in the first place, let's see that there's something very sad about Mordecai's words. Who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? It shouldn't have been a question. Who knows? Perhaps you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. It shouldn't have been a question, but a confident confession of faith. God The God of our fathers, Jehovah, who is ever faithful. He is the one who by his providence has elevated you to this position of queenship. And now, as we look at what is happening, we see his wisdom and what he has done. But all Mordecai musters here is the vague, maybe, maybe, your queen, for this reason. It's astounding, isn't it? If ever there was a time to make mention of Jehovah God in all of the history up to this point, this is the time. If ever there was a time to recall his covenant faithfulness, all of his promises to his people Israel, all of his mighty acts of deliverance in the past, would be now. Mordecai comes so close to saying, God raised you up for this, and yet, He falls short of it. He doesn't say it. And God's name, as we've seen, goes unmentioned in the book of Esther. What explains this? What explains this? This failure to mention God at the most opportune moment when a believing Jew ought to mention God. Well, as some have said, Mordecai and Esther maybe are reprobates. Maybe they're complete unbelievers. And that may be the case, though the book doesn't tell us. In that case, it shows here that even unbelievers have a vague understanding of providence. They know there is a God. And that by His almighty power, He works all things. They know, but they suppress the knowledge of the truth. But deep down, they know it. In that case, an important application comes to us. God is at work even where he is not confessed. God is at work even where he is denied. 
And that's an application that comes out time and time again in the book of Esther. God is not named and that is strange. But the the strangeness of the book of Esther shows us its significance. Where God is not named, where God is unseen, there he is still at work. His hand is active even when men are blind to it. And that's a comfort to us too. How much of God's work do we know about? When you think about it, we know a sliver of what God is doing in the world for his people. And the great message of the book of Esther is God is working all things for the preservation of his church. He's even working in the courts of wicked men, in the centers of earthly power. Governing and directing all for his people. How little we know, how little we perceive. But it doesn't mean God isn't working. He is. Even where he is unconfessed. Even where he is denied. Even where he is actively militated against. God is sovereignly working for us. That's a comfort. But now it could also be that Esther and Mordecai were children of God. That's a possibility, though children of God who were weak and compromised believers. And in that case, they again illustrate for us the sad consequences of blending in with the world and letting faith slip. You see, Mordecai, using language, using concepts he has inherited from his Jewish forefathers, but he no longer understands them. They no longer live in his heart. And that's so sad, isn't it? In such a time as this, in such a time of great trial, he did not have the heritage of faith to fall back on. He didn't have that rock of God's promises to rest upon. He speaks Vaguely about the providence of God, but that theology is no longer living in his heart so that it comforts him. All he can muster is an uncertain who knows. For us, does our theology live in our hearts? Or is it a dead orthodoxy? We know biblical concepts. We speak biblical language. That's good. But do those truths live in our hearts such that they control how we live and guide our lives? Do we not only speak the language of providence, but believe it and rest in it in such a time as this? In the time of trial? That's the most precious thing that we have. And there is one of the most powerful Powerful truths to bring to bear against the temptation of worldliness. Worldliness gives us nothing. This earth gives us nothing. When the trials come, like we see them here, a time when seemingly unconquerable evil is mustering itself against the people of God. There was nowhere to turn, no human help, nowhere to turn but Jehovah and his faithfulness. That's our rock of refuge, too. Let our theology not simply be something we carry with us as a cultural inheritance or as something we understand just with the mind. But let 
the truths of God's word live in our hearts and be our recourse in times of trouble. Let us live not as practical atheists. We see a little bit of that in Mordecai. God just doesn't enter the picture. God isn't on his mind. And that can sometimes be the case with us too, can't it? But now, a second major application. A more positive one. Isn't it beautiful how much truth there is to Mordecai's words? Truth, far more truth than he imagined or understood when he spoke them. Indeed, Esther has come to the kingdom for such a time as this. That is precisely correct. That is what has happened here. Not by chance, not by a stroke of luck, not by human design. But by the agency of the hand of the unseen king who rules in Persia, who rules in the world, Jehovah God. The unseen king has raised up Esther and brought her to this position in Persia precisely at this time, precisely in the hour of need of his people so that she might be the instrument in his hand to bring yet another act of mighty deliverance to his people in faithfulness to his covenant promises to his church. And now in the rest of the book, This is what's so glorious in Esther. We will see God at work. Unacknowledged, unseen as he is by everyone else in the book, we will see God at work preserving his church. We will see his faithfulness put on display, his almighty power exerted for the salvation of his people. For such a time as this, God put Esther in place For such a time as this. When not only Haman. Was seeking to destroy the Jews. But behind Haman. When Satan was marshalling all of his forces. In effort to destroy the line of Christ. God raised up Esther in such a time as this. That she might be used to thwart that design of Satan. And preserve the line of Christ. For the salvation of us all. For such a time as this. It's as Joseph. It's like Joseph whom God sent to Egypt. Through many trials and pains. So that he might be used of God to save Jacob and the rest of his family from famine. And Joseph himself acknowledged that in Genesis 45 verse 5 when he said. God did send me before you to preserve your life. That's what the unseen king is doing here. God elevated Esther to this position to save the lives of his people. Our times are in God's hands. All of time is in God's hands. God brings deliverance to his people in most marvelous and unexpected ways. One more application here. To encourage us in our lives. For such a time as this. God raises up saints. For such a time as this. It's not just for super saints. There really isn't such a thing. It's for all of us. God has put us. In the here and now. 
He has woven our life together. And he raises us up for such a time as he gives us to live in. To face the trials that come with that time. To glorify him in that time. And he gives us the grace for it. Burdened, weary parents. Raising your children. Struggling with difficult children. Feeling dismayed at times. God has raised you up for such a time as this. Not because you are so great or that you have it all together or you have the resources of yourself to figure it all out. He is your strength. He is your wisdom. Afflicted saint, suffering saint, sorrowing saint. Saints dealing with perplexing and painfully difficult family situations. You fill in the blank what you're going through right now. God who holds the times in his hands has given this to you in his wisdom and in his good purpose. And he raises you up for such a time as this. And gives you the grace. Rest in him. Trust in him. Rely on him. The unseen king whose ways though they are high above ours. Are the best ways. We come to the last part of the history now. Mordecai's words had weight. And Esther was persuaded. Determined to go unbidden to the king. And so one last time, Hatak is sent back to Mordecai. This time with Queen Esther's resolved and determined answer. And with a command to Mordecai. That's verse 16. And Esther explains, before I go, Mordecai, you and the Jews of the city, you go and fast for me. Fast for me. For three days, all day, all night. It's a pretty severe fast. More severe than Jewish fasts ordinarily were. Indicating the seriousness of the situation. And perhaps another reason for this fast was maybe Esther was seeking to draw Ahasuerus' attention. If Ahasuerus hears that I and my maidens are fasting, perhaps he will call me and we can avoid this whole situation of me having to go unbidden. Whatever the motivations may have been, Esther calls for a fast. For the Jewish people to rally around her and in some ways support her and help her as she goes to the king unbidden. And after the three days of fasting, she says, though it's against the law, I will go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. There's been question about the spirit in which she spoke those words. Is this courage and determination? Is this grim resignation to the inevitable? Is this fatalism? The likely answer is that it's a mixture of all of them. There is certainly courage in those words. Esther marshals strength and God's hand is here. God is moving her forward to do his will. There is certainly courage here, but undoubtedly some grim resignation as well. You can't escape a hint of fatalism in those words. If I perish, I perish. Somewhat like Jacob's words when he realized he had no choice but to send Benjamin to Egypt and he said, If I be bereaved of my children, 
I am bereaved. But now for us, beloved, in our lives, in facing the times that God calls us to live in, let us not have merely a grim resignation to what comes our way, but let us respond with robust faith in the Lord. Not, if I perish, I perish. What happens will happen, so be it. But thy will be done. Thy will be done. Thy will which is only good. If I perish, Lord, then it is thy will and thou art glorified in it. And I know that I will be with thee. Thy will be done. And if I be spared, it is thy will also and thy name will be glorified. Thy will be done. That's the Christian's. That's the Christian's refrain in this life. And one we have to keep on learning because it's so hard for our flesh. Thy will, not my will be done. Thy name be glorified in me. Whatever comes to pass. And so Esther was the queen for such a time as this. God put her in this position because at this time the Jews needed a mediator. Someone to go between them and the king. And to plead their cause. For a final application. Let us see. How much better a mediator we have. Jesus Christ. Our advocate. Before the throne. And judgment seat of God. We need a mediator. Not to save us from the unjust edict of a tyrant. But a mediator to save us from the just and deserved curse of the law. And we have that mediator in the king's own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who did not have to be persuaded or compelled to take up our cause, but did so willingly. Who in the fullness of time came for such a time as this to bring deliverance to his people who were dwelling in the shadow of death, who took upon himself our flesh and became one of us to represent us before the judgment seat of God. And doing this, Meant certain death. And it meant the greatest of deaths. The worst of deaths. Hell and all its fury on the cross of Calvary. And yet he came and he went. To pay for our sins. To reconcile us to God. To gather us for his own. To a feast. The king's banquet. In the king's house. In the glory of salvation forevermore. And all of the work of the unseen king in this chapter of Esther serves the coming of that mediator, our Lord Jesus Christ. To apply it to our day, everything that goes on in this world, it's in the unseen king's hand. Working towards and serving the coming of that mediator a second time. For you, beloved, take heart. Be comforted in that. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly for thy people. Amen. Faithful God and Heavenly Father, we thank thee for this history in the book of Esther, which shows us so much about thy works and ways. Grant that it may indeed comfort us, and that we may make our refuge Upon thee, the rock of our salvation. Send us forth into a new week with this renewed strength. Hear our prayer now for Jesus' sake. Amen.